The following audio is from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. As you have a seat, let me uh, welcome you. My name is Kenan Vaughn, and I've got a, uh, just such a privilege of being pastor here at Harvest Church, and it's just such a joy to be a part of this church with you. Um, on a little bit of a three-day high right now, Thursday night was so fun. For those of you that volunteer on any of our teams, we had a volunteer appreciation banquet, and it was a blast. Uh, you've probably heard there was a legendary uh, lip sync battle that took place. I think it was videoed, so try to find that on the underground, whatever. Uh, it is really good. Uh, we had a blast, laughed a lot, had great food, fellowship, entertainment, uh, if no other reason than to be a part of that next year, you want to volunteer on a team. Trust me. Uh, it's a really good night. And then Friday night, I don't know if y'all, y'all heard, but the, but the Cubbies beat the Cards 17-15. Now, some of y'all are going, wait a minute. The Cubbies didn't play the Cards. They did in first and second grade coach pitch. And um, my boys happened to be on the Cubbies, so we had an epic night of celebration in the Vaughn household after the big walk-off double in the bottom of the fifth. So uh, great night. And then we had a... Um, we had Saturday night, gosh, last night got to do a wedding for a young couple in our body. These young people in our body are marrying each other like crazy, and, uh, which is really fun, um, but a lot of weddings, and it was a sweet one. Lot, saw a lot of you guys last night, and uh, we just had a great time celebrating what God's done in the life of a young man and young woman, the two becoming one, the mystery of the gospel displayed in marriage. So really just a fun last three nights, and um, and. Uh, exhausting but fun and can't wait to get into our passage this morning if you want to turn with me to revelation we're going to start a new series we're going to do a little seven week uh, series called seven letters for seven churches this series is out of revelation now we're not going to cover the entire book of revelation right now but I have a hard time doing that in seven weeks but we are going to look at chapters two and three Uniquely in these chapters are found these seven letters to seven churches. I'm going to give you a little context of that in just a moment. And uh, these, are, uh, these are letters inked by the very words of Christ. John inks them, but he really is dictating what Christ gives him in way of messages to seven churches. And I'm telling you, every message to each of those historical churches has incredible application to harvest and to every church in the church age. So we hope to learn what it is that Christ desires for his church through this series. So if you will bow in prayer with me and then we'll dig into the first letter to the first church. Father, thank you that we can come together as a body and, uh, and just be your body. That we're, we're not meeting here haphazardly. Uh, this is not a, a, a random joining together for the convenience of worship. This is a, a body of believers, of Christ followers. We call one another brothers and sisters. We are co-heirs with you who are the risen Savior. And we long await the meeting where we will be with you face to face and we will get to share uh, intimacy, intimate fellowship with you for all of eternity and reign in a kingdom that you establish for your glory. And so God, we, we come together in celebration, in gratitude, humbled in worship, and, uh, and we say thank you. God, thank you for the work you've done and are doing in our life and in the life of this visible display of your body, this church. God, I pray that we would heed the instruction and even the warning uh, given to this church in Ephesus today at Harvest. Pray that as I speak, I would decrease. I must because you must increase. And so it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
So a little context of the Apostle John who, who writes Revelation. Uh, he's in his mid-90s at this point. He's been exiled to an island called Patmos. It's kind of a, a rocky dungeon of an island in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, the Roman Empire would use it to send prisoners to, to let them waste away. That's exactly what had happened to John. Matter of fact, late in his life, John had been testifying to the gospel. He was preaching. He was writing, wrote the gospel of John. Um, uh, it, it just the, the man was a uh, man. He, he wouldn't shut up about Jesus. And so the Roman emperor, Domitian, got upset with him and got tired of hearing him. And so uh, decided they would have him killed by dropping him in a vat of boiling oil. So this is true. This is historically documented. They take the Apostle John. He's lived later than all the other apostles who've already been martyred. And, and it, I believe he was 90 years old. They drop him in a vat of boiling oil. Can you imagine that? And, uh, and, and, and while usually this kills whoever's the victim, in this case, it doesn't kill John just by God's uh, supernatural grace. Uh, he wants John still alive for, for one more, at least one more mission. And so John comes out and he's not dead. And Domitian is really frustrated. And so he sends him to the island of Patmos. He says, you can rot there, you and your Jesus. And so John goes to Patmos, uh, not again by choice, but uh, by way of edict from Domitian. And he's there and he's suffering. And he's in his mid-90s. And I want you to pick the story up in chapter 1, verse 9. Let's give a little context, kind of a runway into chapter 2. Look what John writes, I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation. Your Bible might say companion in suffering. But that, that's what it means, though. It's, it's partner in tribulation, companion in suffering, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, I love that little, that little intro, by the way. Look what John is saying. He's saying, I'm your brother. This is John to you and I. I'm your brother. And I'm a partner in tribulation, like I'm a companion in suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Those are three great, like that's what it is to be a Christian. That's a whole other sermon for another time. But what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that I have forsaken the things of this world for the things of Christ. So what am I about? I'm about the kingdom of God. And I'm willing to patiently endure through the trials and tribulations of this world until he comes again. Amen. John says, I am with you in that. Like, I'm living that way, and I'm a companion of yours because I know you are as well. What was John's expectation? Did you see that? He doesn't think it's only him that'll suffer for being a Christian. He doesn't think it's only him as an apostle of Christ that will forsake what otherwise could be worldly comfort and pleasure and ambition in order to be on an island, having forsaken everything, patiently enduring the trials of this world, waiting for Christ, and being about the things of the kingdom. John's idea is that's every Christian. And we live in this day where that notion is being challenged, where many say that uh, uh, the hope of Christ for his church is that they may merely prosper materially, that they may just be a place of abundance, a place of great comfort and security and prosperity in every way. John didn't think so. And the more I read my Bible, it's not the impression I ever get from Jesus. He didn't save us that we may be materially rich in this world. He saved us that we may be rich in Christ, willing to forsake the things of this world for his kingdom to be pushed forth by the surrendering of our lives and that we patiently endure this world until we meet him face to face. John said, I'm doing it and I'm your companion because it'll be your story too. So he's not exactly sulking, he's commiserating, whether we like it or not. And he said this, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice. So John hears this voice like a trumpet and I'll just tell you, the voice said, hey, write down what you're seeing and write a letter to seven churches and he names these churches right there, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. 
John hearing this voice saying, write these letters to these churches, he turns to see the voice speaking to him in verse 12, and he saw seven golden lampstands. Now those represent the churches. In the midst of the lampstands, he saw one like a son of man. Give you one guess who this is. Clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. This, this man is king. This man is priest. Hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. Eyes were like a flame of fire. Feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Is that how you normally picture Christ? That is not the picture that hangs in the hallways of most churches of Jesus. That's not the mural on most toddler's wall. Okay, white hair, sword coming from his mouth. But understand, this is the risen Christ in all his glory, sun, uh, his face shining like, shining like the sun, and he is preparing to come back in judgment. He will judge all that is wicked. And he says to John, listen to these words, uh, well, actually, John first seventeen. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I totally get that. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, "Fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Who is that? That is Jesus. That is the resurrected King." And he says, write what you've seen, literally this vision. So John has written in chapter one what he has seen. Those that, things that are and that are to take place after this. Those things that are will be these letters to these seven churches in chapter two and three. Then that will take place after this. Will show us the, the end times all the way to the second coming of Christ. And so then we come to chapter two and he's gonna write the first letter to the first church. Jesus has a word specifically for the church at Ephesus. Chapter two, verse one, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now the angel of the church in Ephesus um, the word uh, angelos means messenger. So, so many scholars think this will be to the pastor, to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Um, right, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, if you look back up at verse 20 of chapter one, you'll see him define these stars and lampstands. The seven stars are the angelos. They're the angels of the seven churches. They're the messengers. They're the pastors. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So understand this about Christ's introduction to Ephesus. First of all, I hold the messenger of your church in my hand. Who is over this church? Don't say Kenan. Please don't say Kenan. In fact, sometimes some, some people say to me, just generally in the Monday through Friday of my life, I'll get a lot of, hey, how's your church doing? And uh, I know what they mean. In fact, they're trying to just be cordial. They're trying to be polite and just, just trying to kind of see what's going on in my life. But it always rubs me a little wrong. Like I always try to think of some really non-socially awkward way to correct that, that statement because I don't want to get struck by a lightning bolt. Like I, it's not my church. Like this is the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, I get to be a messenger, praise God, but he holds all authority not only over this church but to life and death. It's his church. If you see me, feel free to ask, how is that visible display of the body of Christ at the corner of Winchester and Forest Hill doing for his glory? <laughs> I'd be thrilled to answer that, but, but how is your church? It's not my church, okay? It's a joy to be a part of this church. Look what Jesus says. I'm over these guys, these pastors, these stars, but let, let me tell you this, and I walk among the golden lampstands. I love it. Jesus has authority 
over the leadership of this church, and yet he walks among the people in this church. Isn't that great? He is over us, and he is with us. And he says in verse two, I know your works. Now, let me say this. This is a message specifically for the church of Ephesus. So understand, like this letter had a recipient that was set in a historical day in reality and culture. He's gonna talk to them as if he's reading their mail, because he is. He knows them. He knows what's going on. He knows what's going on in Ephesus. This, this letter is not meant to be just hand in glove for us necessarily. It may be, and we certainly need to heed what it says, but it is meant to be. It is a letter to his people at his church in Ephesus in 92 AD. And it has a very unique historical application for them, but it has a wide moral application for every church. Look, in these letters, we're going to find out what Jesus commends in his church, in these seven letters, what he loves. And we're going to find what he rebukes in his church, what he loathes. So when we get seven letters for seven churches, when we take a composite view, we're going to see what it looks like to be faithful as a, Jesus, uh, as a church of Jesus Christ according to his standard, according to his idea. In our culture, it's all about how many people do you have. That's the big gauge of whether or not you're a success. These seven letters tell you what success looks like to the head of the church who's amidst his people. He says, here's what I love in my church. Here's what I loathe in my church. And we need to heed these seven letters. Okay, so first one, to the church in Ephesus, he says, I know your works. He's talking to this little church, a little house band of believers in Ephesus. I know your works and your toil, that means copas. Um, it's where we get our term copious, like you take copious notes, means you're thorough. They were thorough in their toil. They were always serving and, and doing good works for Christ. And your patient endurance, that's a pretty good start, right? Like Christ says, I see you in your good works. You're always exhaustively going and toiling, and you're patiently enduring. That's good, just like John, who, by the way, before he was exiled, was a teaching pastor in Ephesus. You guys are following the example set before you, and you cannot bear those, uh, with those who are evil, which, by the way, they're surrounded by uh, an evil that is almost hard to get our minds around. Can I give you just a little bit of historical context on Ephesus? Ephesus was the, it, it, I think it's fair to say, the epicenter of gross immorality and pagan worship in the entire Roman Empire in the first century. That's a strong statement. The Roman Empire was a, was a pagan empire, especially in this day. And Ephesus was the epicenter of, of grotesque pagan worship. People came all over, from all over the world to uh, worship a false goddess named Artemis, who was the goddess of fertility and war. And the way you worshiped Artemis was you went to the temple uh, that was built over generations, to, which, by the way, is one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, and that day, when you built a temple, the, the greatness of the temple displayed the greatness of your God. And so in Ephesus, they built this generational uh, temple that displayed, in their mind, the greatness of their God, Artemis. And it was so big, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. In fact, we have a picture of it. That's the temple of Artemis, just this enormous vast structure. They had games called uh, the Artemisian Games. People came from all over the world to participate, kind of like the Olympic Games. They came from all over the world, but they came to worship the, god, the goddess Artemis. And let me tell you how you worshiped Artemis. Artemis, um, the name means many-breasted one. There was little statues of Artemis with all these breasts all over her body. She was known to be the sustainer of life as the goddess of fertility and yet war. And the way you worshiped her was to come to the temple and you would have sexual relations with one of the temple prostitutes. You think, well, not many people can worship at once. Take a look at that. 
That's 127 columns, 60 some odd feet wide, 30 feet wide. It is a massive structure where literally they could gather from all over the world and have this just ginormous week-long feast of games and sexual immorality. And they did it in, in the spirit of worshiping. So uh, Ephesus is known as the, temple, the place of temple worship of Artemis, hailed all over the pagan world. And that's how they worship. So the whole culture Literally, the culture, think about the culture of Memphis and people are going to maybe temple on Saturdays and church on Sundays and we have this way, that we have the way that we worship and of course we are worshiping the one true God in their day, the way they worship the rhythm of their life was sexual immorality with temple prostitutes. That's the culture, that's what everybody does. And um, I'll tell you something else about Ephesus, it was a, it was a home of witchcraft. So, so couple these two together uh, just to get a picture of the darkness, a very oppressed place, demonically oppressed place. They would train the young men and women to be uh, witches and sorcerers and wizards. They had their own little hogwarts of such. They had a school literally for people all over the Roman province would come and they would learn. They would teach them the magic arts. Now, by the way, this is in your Bible, okay? If you hadn't read Acts 19, that's where I'm drawing a lot of this from. And, and that's where, that, I mean, that was Ephesus, this place of witchcraft, sorcery, temple worship through sexual immorality. Are you, are you getting a kind of a flavor of this place? Let me give you one more thing that just, just crushes me, but I, somehow I think it adds that last piece of understanding of Ephesus. Um, they, as a leftover, uh, uh, kind of the lingering effect of the Greek empire was the worship of the human body, so they were all about the, 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 the body being perfect, perfectly shaped, and you know, obviously we're not into that anymore, but they were really big on, on this, just kinda to the extent of the, the body. And so, so when they had children, so this is true, this is historically documented by secular philosophers and, um, and historians, and they would take the babies and they would take them to the elders. There was an elder council, and there was one elder specifically who had the final say, Every baby was taken before this elder, elder council in Ephesus. They, they, they analyzed every part of this baby's body. It wasn't just quick 10 fingers, 10 toes, good to go. It was analyzing the body to see if there was any blemish, any imperfection. If there was any blemish or imperfection with any of these children, the elder would uh, determine that the child was not worthy to be reared that it had a mark of divine displeasure. So they would take the baby to the backside of the hill of Tegesis on the outskirts of the city, and they would throw the baby on this hillside, and they were forced to leave it there to die. You literally had a hillside filled with dying babies that the elder council determined some form of physical imperfection not worthy to be raised. Can you smell the evil of Ephesus? Okay. And then we get this little, this little church, 52, 53 AD, uh, a couple, kind of a Jim and Dee Dee Holmes is what I picture, this uh, couple named Priscilla and Aquila, Acts 18. They're in Ephesus. They're sharing the gospel. By God's grace, they're leading just a little band of people to, to, to come to Christ. And then there comes this passionate, fiery evangelist. There's this Robbie Flack in town, and Robbie is preaching boldly the gospel of Christ. Now, Robbie, in his youthful angst, uh, Priscilla and Aquila take him in, and they help him. They correct a little bit of his theology. They, they help him with some of his maturity. But Apollos is a fire man. He is excited. And, and so the, the word stirs, and God uses that voice and the wisdom of Priscilla and Aquila, and all of a sudden that band of believers grows and there's disciples multiplying in Ephesus. It's a little house church. Paul comes, Acts 19. 
First thing he does is, 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 uh, is clear up that, that, that some of them know nothing about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit's even come. They've been baptized in, in way of John the Baptist's baptism to repent of their sins. Don't know the Holy Spirit's come. First thing Paul does, pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. They, they give evidence of having received the Holy Spirit. And then Paul begins to teach in the synagogue as he does everywhere he goes, and he only lasts three months until they kick him out. Jews say, no more of this nonsense. So Paul goes to a Greek philosopher's school called the school of the Hall of Tyrannus. Finds a place he can set up camp, and he begins to teach. Every day for two years, Paul's teaching in the Hall of Tyrannus. To the extent that he teaches class, then these people who gather would then scatter, and they go and reteach what they're learning. To the extent that after two years, Acts 19 says every Jew and Gentile in all of the province of Asia, that's where these seven churches are, every single one had heard the gospel. Every Jew and every Gentile means everybody. Remember the historical context. Remember Ephesus, this cesspool of sin and immorality. And now every single person has heard the gospel. Now, what results in the faithfulness of this little band of people sharing the truth of the gospel? These seeds, they scatter, and God waters, and he brings forth fruit. There's a revival. And there are all these people that begin to get saved. They put their trust in Jesus. They reject Artemis. They quit going to temple worship. Matter of fact, it says in Acts 19, most of these converts are coming out of sorcery and witchcraft because that's what everybody does. So they bring their books of, of divination and arts and magic, and they have this huge bonfire, this revival. There's this bonfire, and they're burning all their books of sorcery. The bonfire was so huge, it said the value of the literature in that bonfire was 50,000 drachmas of silver. Uh, one drachma was like one day's wage. I did the math, pulled out my calculator, typed it in. It would be like 130 years' worth of your salary. That's how much this book on arts just goes up in smoke. Now, one of the silversmiths named Demetrius, he and the other little craftsmen who make a living, uh, you know, uh, building these little, little statues, these little trinkets, these little um, statues of Artemis that people can buy, that's how they make a living. Well, nobody's buying anymore. There's been this massive revival in about 54 AD. People aren't buying. And Demetrius gets angry and he gathers together a little guild of workers and he says, we better do something or we're all gonna be out of work. These people no longer wanna worship our God. They're saying there's another God who's God and not Artemis. We all know that can't be true. They bring together a riot in the city. They, 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 the riot tumbles into the stadium. Do you know that the stadium in that day held 25,000 people? The stadium in Ephesus. And it says they pack it out. And they're chanting, great is the goddess Artemis. Great is the goddess Artemis. <laughs> By the way, you know where the Apostle Paul is in this? One of my favorite just little verses in Acts 19. It says, Paul's going, get me in there. <laughs> Not get me out of here. Like, get me in that stadium. I, give, give me a mic. They didn't have a mic back then. But let me speak to these people. Like, Paul is ferociously trying to get into the stadium of 25,000 people chanting, great is the goddess Artemis. And the disciples won't let him. They say they will stone you. They will kill you. They literally, they have to, I just picture them holding him back in his fury. <laughs> and so finally, a city clerk has to go and squelch this thing, this riot kind of, and, and I'm telling you, this is, this is 54 AD now. There is a revival. The church is exploding. The culture is threatened. The cesspool of immorality. The light is piercing the darkness. That's what's happening when, and, and, okay, 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 that's what's happening. 93. Two now, 92 to 95, is when Jesus gives this letter to John to give to Ephesus. So 40 years later, 
40 years after this initial revival, watch what happens. I know your works, your toil, and your patient earnings, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. In other words, you are still towing the line. You are not engaged in temple worship. You are not participating in the cesspool of sin and magic and sorcery and sexual immorality. Like, your morality is good. I see your works, they're good. And watch this, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you found them to be false. Like you guys care not merely about morality, but about theology, about doctrine. You know, their pastors have been um, Aquila and Priscilla, and then you had Apollos come in and teaching, and then you had the Apostle Paul with them for a few, three years. Then you had Timothy pastoring. Then you had John as a teaching elder. That's pretty solid theology. And it says you test the apostles. Like you study, you understand what's true and what's false, and you call out false apostles. These people behave well, they think well. By the way, what'd you say about this church so far? Every one of y'all just did this. Like, great! In fact, it goes a little bit further. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Tough, it's a tough day, but these are a tough people. They won't give in. They believe right, they live morally, they're holy, they're consecrated unto the Lord. They persevere in their faithfulness. Verse four, but, is important. Jesus says to them, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Wow. You're still doing all the things. You're still gathering in worship. You're not participating in temple worship. You haven't gone back to your pagan ways. You're still living in obedience according to the word that you've been given. You're still parsing any other word you hear to make sure your theology does not get compromised. You are still living right, believing right, but here's the deal. You don't really love me anymore. Your love for me has gone cold. You know, this church, I was excited. I mean, they were doing, there's so much there that is to be commended and Christ affirms them in. But then to say, I mean, like, wait, you can do all that without loving him? Is that possible? Can you really be so good in morality and theology and yet heart cold? Let me talk to some of you guys that have been married for a while. I think marriage gives us a great tangible example for many of us, probably most of us, of how this is possible. And then we'll come back to show that it's true of our relationship with Jesus. You know, I have the uh, opportunity as a part of my job to sit with many young couples. It's one of my favorite things, actually. It's called premarital counseling. And uh, couples come in there uh, who are obnoxiously in love. And um, I've got this nice big couch. It's got three cushions. They share one. <laughs> They're not meant to be shared. But they, you couldn't get a dollar bill between their legs or pressed up between each other. And they're holding hands and arms around. They look like a big pretzel right there. And there's this conversation, and sometimes I feel like they don't even know I'm in the room. Like, they're just googly-eyed. I have to repeat myself over and over. They say things that aren't funny at all, but they're laughing at each other. It's a weird deal. And you know what? It's consistent. Premarital counseling, like that's what I'm walking into. These, these two, they're just so in love. It's like so much of life just really hasn't happened yet. And when they tell their story, you know what you hear? Like they spend so much time, an exorbitant amount of time with one another or talking to one another or at least texting one another. And when they're not with or talking or texting, they're consumed by their thought life for one another. 
Like, they forget to go to class because they're so in love. They, they talked all night long and so they're having a problem being late to work because they're talking all night long. Like, you can't close it up and go to sleep. We couldn't. We had to keep talking. Couldn't work, lost my job. So in love. <laughs> don't care about the job. I don't, you, you realize you're not gonna be able to support, I don't care. This love. And, uh, and let me tell you about another part of my job. Another part of my job um, is called marital counseling. So this usually takes place two years in, five years in, uh, 40 years in. And let me tell you what happens. Couples come in, same couch. Uh, they sit on two different cushions. Often they even leave a cushion in between them. And, um, and they, they actually hear what I say. You know, it's like I'm in the room. It's nice to be acknowledged. And we have these conversations. And let me tell you what happens. This couple usually will say something like, or very often something like, you know what? We're still together. We still believe in marriage. We know what this is about and it's not really about us and it's God's will for us to stay together and we're, we're trying our best and we've made some bad decisions or done some things that are wrong but yet we're still in it. We're still under the same roof. We're still eating at the same table but, but we gotta be honest, something's missing. Like it's been 20 years but something is gone that used to be there. Like we used to be like those couples that you see for premarital that were in here the last hour that walking out, it was embarrassing. It's like this office is a, a platform for their public display of affection but, but we need a tune up. We've lost that. And somewhere as the story goes, it's, it's kind of always similar, it's always this we were once just over, overwhelmed with passion and intimacy with and for one another. And then, you know, then we settled into jobs and there were bills and mortgages and our time was a little bit more thin. We got involved in community service and church life and, and, we, and you know, it's trying to stay. And, and so we just had a little less of each other. It was okay. We're still talking two or three times in the day. We're still staying up at lot, late at night. We still have date nights. All is, is still pretty good. And then all of a sudden these bombs called children went off in the house and and, um, and all of a sudden, everything is just like a train wreck, and there's just poopy diapers all over the place and ear infections. Like, how many ear infections can you possibly have to stave off in one child's life? And, and there's just so much laundry. Like, she feels like she spends 40% of her awake time doing laundry and just being the family chauffeur. And, and the husband's like, he's torn between trying to hold down a job, wanting to be involved in coaching one or two of these teams and then home maintenance, like they're breaking everything, so you're just always fixing stuff. And then there's lawn care, like you gotta mow every once in a while, it's like, a, it's like nom in your front yard, and this just, and then there's sleep deprivation, because nobody can possibly do all that, and, and, and man, that sounds like I'm speaking from experience right there, I'm gonna tell you what, I am, I feel that in the depths of my loins, that's where we are. <laughs> and it's this season, and it's like the spin cycle, and you're just, you're just spinning. And then from what I've heard from a lot of these marriage counseling, I keep thinking if we can just kind of get through, you know, like, like we can just kind of make, and, and they say, no, man, it gets worse. Like, like uh, you know, you've got the minivan, you have to get a minivan, you've got your balancing practices and recitals and plays and stuff, and, and then what happens is they get a little older and then they start to notice there's a thing called the opposite sex. And all of a sudden they care how they look and there's these conversations to worry about. And then, and then it gets really bad because they get a driver's license. I was with a lady Friday night at the rehearsal dinner and she was like really paranoid, like just kind of awkwardly uncomfortable at the table. And, and she told me it was because her son was at the Grizzly game. And I was like, 
it doesn't seem that horrifying, you know? Are, are you like a huge grizzly fan? And she goes, no, my son's 16. I just want him to get there and back. I was like, wow, okay, um, we'll pray for him. And she's like, just checking every two minutes. Like, he's probably on the way right now, and I don't know if he's gonna make him. And I was like, whoa, mama, like that thing, that's a whole nother stratosphere. And, and, uh, and it, just, it just keeps deepening and happening, and it's crazy, and then one day, one day you launch them off to job or another place or college or school. And then these couples sit on my couch and say, it's like we came home and then it was like, all right, I know, I know you, but I'm just like, what? Like, tell me about yourself again. Like, like, who are you? Same roof, same table, same bed, but something's gone that was once right there. They spun all the plates they stayed in the lines, they colored on the right, but some's just gone. And Catherine and I have to be really careful. We have to be really intentional to cultivate intimacy in our marriage because we can see how we can very quickly just kind of co-labor for the sake of house cleaning, home repair, and lawn care. Like we can just kind of like be roommates on a mission. And it's discouraging. Like, she and I can get discouraged. And the reason we get discouraged is Catherine didn't marry me with the hope of always having fresh mulch in the beds. That wasn't what she was thinking when she held my hands and I gave my vows before God and man. I didn't marry her hoping that the carpet would always be clean. My clothes ironed. We hoped for something far more than that. When we held hands and said our vows, you know what we were thinking? This thing we've got, this special thing that consumes us, this love that is central to the newness of our relationship, this intimacy that is real and tangible, we want this forever. Amen. Which, by the way, is the design of God for marriage. I don't want you to think anything else. And Jesus says to Ephesus, you're spinning all the plates you're in church, you're on a volunteer team, you're in a Bible study, you're doing one of the D groups, you're singing the songs, you're even having a quiet time. Like, you're reading the Bible, but I can see and you know that you're reading it to say that you read it. You're checking all the boxes and everything's great between me and you except us. Our love has gone cold. Relationship became routine. Ephesus. And Jesus says to Ephesus, listen, I don't just want your wholesome morality and your sound theology. I want your heart. I'm not merely after your good works. I want you. Like, like Jesus could say, I have a myriad of angelic hosts that can serve me far better than you ever could. But there's one thing that you can give me that they can't. The intimacy of a fallen creature who's been redeemed by the very sacrifice of my blood that knows me and loves me. That's what I want from you. You're giving me everything else. But you don't love me. wonder how many in this room have, have impeccable theology. And morally, boy, you're above reproach as far as everybody knows. But underneath the morality and the theology, there's kind of a shell 
there's kind of this thing that once was, and it's missing. And Jesus says, Ephesus, you've abandoned your love for me. Now, I want to say this. First of all, if you're there, if you feel that, if you're going, man, I, I know exactly, hey, hey, this isn't just Ephesus. There should be like a little footnote that says, and you harvest people, because I know that feeling. Like, that's me, and, and man, it's all become routine, and I'm still playing. I haven't, I haven't uh, given up. I haven't punted the faith. I'm not going back to my pagan ways, but it does kind of just feel like all motion and no substance. First, understand this. You Abandon your love for me, but never in the text does it say that he abandoned his love for you. So understand this. You don't lose your first love even when you leave your first love because your first love will not leave you. You may wander from uh, a place of intimacy, but you can't wander outside the grip of his grace. And so once you are in Christ, sincerely in him, he has sealed you and he will hold you and you will be his and he will be yours. But you won't experience the intimacy that he has for you and that he desires you to have in him. He desires us to be full. And you know it if you're missing it. You're going, gosh, there's something that was there that's gone. And so Jesus then tells us, here's how you find me again. Here's, it, by the way, it's not gonna be it's not going to be, um, you know, do more stuff, believe more right, live more faithful. It's going to be, watch this in verse 5, remember. Underline that word, remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. He's not talking about theologically. They didn't come off their, their, their doctrine. This is not a rebuke of their belief. It's not morally they haven't taken up sexual immorality. They're not going back to Tim Board. It's not morally. It is intimacy. Remember the way we used to be? Can I just ask you? Because normally for most of us, this is the beginnings. This is that, this is that, this is that early time in our relationship, early days of ministry. When you when you when you when you first understood the gospel, and what I mean understood it is spiritual ears, like you were broken in your sin. And in the midst of your brokenness, you understood God's love and you understood it in a whole new light, like that you were loved even before you screwed it all up and when you screwed it all up, you were still loved and now his grace is available to you through the provision of Christ and you can't even believe it and it's so fresh and it's so real and you surrender. And when you do, you feel like the weight of sin is lifted off your shoulder and it's that Holy Spirit coming in and filling you and you know in that moment, somehow I was dead and now I'm alive. Now, I want you to go there. Some of you, that was six months ago. Some of you, it was 60 years ago. But I want you to do what Jesus said. Remember. Remember what that was like. Remember how you loved me. Remember how you thirsted for me. Remember how I was enough. You were satisfied in me. Like I was all you ever wanted. And you didn't care about the money and you didn't care about the job and you didn't care about all those other things. Like I just am so full in Christ. Remember. I wanted to practice what I was going to preach this week and so I just, I sat. It's a couple times I was, instead of moving on to the next point, I said, all right, Ken, let's remember. 
Like let's, like, let's remember those early days of ministry. This isn't me going back to seminary and being wowed by theo- theological nuance. This is the early days when I still knew nothing. And yet my heart was on fire for Christ. This was when I, my brief stint playing baseball at Vanderbilt when there was a, a, a freshman on the team named Kyle Flubacher. And Kyle was from Chicago. And God gave me a burden like I never had for a, for a lost um, friend. Kyle just, he was an atheist. Uh, he was very smart, uh, academic, intellectual kind of guy, but he, he believed there was no God, and God just, God just burdened me. Like, I had lots of lost friends, but all of a sudden, I couldn't, I, I just couldn't think about anything else other than Kyle, and God impressed me to pray, and so I prayed. As faithfully as I ever prayed for someone to know Christ, I prayed for Kyle. Boy, that soil was like concrete, I would drive over, pick him up at 3.30 in the morning or 4.30 in the morning for our practices. And, um, and I'd pray all the way there that God would let us have some kind of meaningful spiritual conversation. Then I'd try it, and man, Kyle would just throw you know, water. He'd tell me I'm crazy and let's not talk about that. And, and I'd try to play like worship music on the radio. I, I don't know, I didn't know, I didn't really have a plan. I just thought maybe that'd be good. And he'd always like, oh my gosh, and he'd turn the channel like immediately. Like I just was like, eh. There went both my bullets, you know, I didn't know what else to do. And, and this was our everyday routine. And we started exchanging books, and he gave me books about why there was no God. And I gave him books about why there is a God. And we would talk about these things. And I, I didn't even know, I, I'd never had good words. I never felt like a conversation was a home run. And so I just kept praying, and I just kept more deeply grieving his lostness. One day or night or whatever 3 a.m. is, he calls me, and he says, um, Kenan, it, it's time. I'm looking at my alarm, my alarm hadn't gone off, I'm like, Kyle, we got like another hour, man, and hours are precious at that time. And uh, he's like, no, man, it's time. I, I've had something happen. Kyle, what's up? Man, you need to come get me. You all right? Yes, just come get me. Kyle, I'm kind of freaking out here. What's happened? He said, Kenan, God has revealed to me, which already, I was like, wait a minute, say that again? Uh, you said God, like you believe. Yes, God has revealed me that not only is he there and is he sovereign, but that he loves me and he sent Christ. By the way, he just came in this beautiful theological three-minute gospel. I mean, I was like, I shot out of bed. I mean, I nearly, I nearly went to pick him up in my boxers. I was so fired up. I mean, I'm literally, nobody's awake anyway. So I'm going down the elevator, putting clothes on. I drive over to where his little uh, dormitory is. I get Kyle, it's pitch black. We go out to this little bridge overlooking Nashville. Both of us there, literally weeping together as Kyle accepts Jesus Christ. Remember what that was like when you were consumed by the lostness of your friend? Got to Kansas City. I was a youth minister. Figured out they had jobs where they actually pay you to do this, and that was a little overwhelming. They don't pay you much, but they do pay you. And I got to Kansas City, and um, I was, uh, was going to be a youth minister. By the way, I don't have family there. I don't have friends there. I knew no one. First time, I'm like out there alone, and, and I, all I had was an old leather green chair that was so nasty, my mom wanted me to take it with me. And, and so I had this old faithful recliner, and I had a radio. Didn't have a TV. And so and, uh, the radio, there's nothing really on the radio, except there were Kansas City Royals games. The Royals were like dead last back then. This was before Royals lore. So I would listen to the Royals get clobbered every night on my old green recliner, and that's like all I had. I was living on the second floor of this, uh, above this sweet little elderly woman named Opal. She was renting me the t- top floor for like 125 a month, which was fantastic. And so my whole deal was I was there with no one and nothing. I had my Bible. 
I had my radio, I had my old green recliner, and I had a sweet little 85-year-old woman to check on and make sure she was still breathing. (laughs) And yet, out my window on the second floor was Kansas City. And I would get on my knees at night, and I would look out that window, and I'd say, Lord, I don't know any of these people. There are high schools galore. I hadn't been to any of them. I don't know any of these students, and yet, God, I pray that you would reap a harvest in this season. I pray that through me, you would make the gospel tangible to not hundreds, but thousands of students, that you would bring revival in this place. And in the days that I had nothing, I've never been so full of purpose or passion in my life out of the intimacy between me and Christ. I was just fully his, so full. We're studying the Bible under Tommy Nelson just from five to seven in the morning. I remember almost daily, I'd be so enamored with something he taught out of the word. I'd be so overwhelmed with the truth and the goodness of God's word that at some point, my, my notes would get scribbled. And you can look at my notes today, and all the way through my notes, it's like this incredible stuff, and then it goes dot, dot, dot. Then it picks up somewhere else. Incredible stuff, dot, dot, dot. Do you know what all the dot, dot, dots are? When I got so overwhelmed with the goodness of his word that I would cry to the point I couldn't type anymore. And I would say, dot, dot, dot. The breaks between, the six o'clock break, I'd always call my buddies who were not awake. But I would leave them four minute messages because most voicemail cut off at four months. And I just would just breathe fire for four minutes about what I was learning out of, you know, Haggai. My buddies around the country were just waking up to just crazy messages. Remember what it was like. Can you guys remember? And he doesn't just say to remember. Look what he says. He says, repent. Do you see this next word? Repent. Metanoia. Like, like, like repent means turn away from something and turn back. So in the context, what are we turning away from? Turn away from those things that have stolen your intimacy, those things that have replaced your enemy. Like what are you so into today? What are you so passionate about today? What consumes your mind and heart today? Repent. Like don't let those things commandeer what we once had. Repent. Turn from those things so that you can return. And look, that's the third point. And do the things you did at first. That's him saying, that's go back to, that's come back. I'm gonna use the word return. Remember where you once were. Repent of those things that have stolen what we had and return to me. Return. Guys, I, in my earliest days of being a Christian, in my earliest days of ministry, here's what I remember. I remember that I read the Bible eager to discover something new every single day. I wasn't checking a box. It wasn't to get my quiet time done. Like I wanted discovery. Like I wanted to know what it said. 
I would memorize the scripture, not because I had an accountability partner and I knew I was gonna have to face him face to face. He was gonna say, okay, give me what you got. It was because I wanted the scriptures to own me. I would share the gospel, not because I was supposed to and I had this guilt and this thing. I would share because I literally lived on the edge of this urgent expectation that there might be somebody today who's lost that at the proclamation of the gospel through my lips might become saved. Most exciting way to live. And somewhere, somewhere along the road of life, the noises and the distractions and the responsibilities and even the good stuff, let me be honest with you. I too have learned to compartmentalize my faith. Somehow I learned the same things that many of you have learned. That worldly ambition and worldly comfort will threaten passion and purpose for Christ. That busyness, just, just straight overwhelmed calendar busyness will steal your intimacy. That caring so much what other people think of you and dying to be accepted in other people's eyes will, will absolutely compromise your urgency to share the gospel. And that routine, going through the motions, will kill your relationship. And Jesus says, remember, remember what we once had? Repent, return, come back to me. And he closes with this word. And if you don't, if not, I'll come to you and I'll remove your lampstand. Like a church, a church that doesn't love Jesus, it, it, it needs no gospel witness. We're not to teach the world merely doctrine and morality. We're to be people that are on fire so that others come to watch us burn. And he says to this church, I will remove your witness. I will, I will do away with you if you cannot find what we're missing if you don't love me, unless you repent. He says in verse seven, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, the word there is overcome, like overcome the distraction of life, overcome the temptation of busyness, overcome the, 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 uh, the, the uh, uh, trinket calls of worldly pleasure and success and comfort. Like if you can overcome that in your repentance and come back to Christ, let me tell you something, I'll grant to you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Do you remember Genesis 3? Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden in response to their sin. That was part of the curse. There they go, and God does something. The very end of Genesis 3, there's a tree of life. Now, they ate of the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil, and that was the reason they were, have uh, been thrown out of the garden. But God protects the tree of life. He puts cherubim there, this angelic order, and he has a flaming sword that no man come and eat from the tree of life. Why? We see in Genesis 3, God desires intimacy with you and I. You drink from the tree of life, or sorry, you eat from the tree of life, and you are in that moment immortal. If you are broken in your relationship with God, if you are not redeemed, God said, you cannot eat from this, or we will be forever separated. And yet I created you for intimacy, so I will guard this tree until the Redeemer comes, until you have a chance to repent of your sin, and love me, and one day, and let me, let me tell you, 
this world that so easily beckons us and calls us and distracts us and grabs us away to other things, one day this world will be gone and in the paradico, in this garden of God, and literally that's what the word means, that's what the picture is, Revelation 22, it will be uh, me in your presence and I love it and there will be the tree of life and the flaming sword is gone, and the cherubim have gone, and for those that stayed hungry, those that clung to me, that I will be their God, they will be my people, and that day you will eat from the tree of life, and our intimacy will be unbroken. That's the day we long for. In this day of shadows, in the shadow land, C.S. Lewis called it, don't get caught playing with the mud pies when a day at the sea awaits. Let's be enamored with Jesus. Remember, repent, return. Amen? Remember, repent, return. Father, just even as these words come off my lips, I'm just hungry again, even in my own life, hungry for that overwhelming intimacy, that silly in loveness with you. And Lord, admittedly, there are seasons in my life where that love is white hot and there are seasons in my life where it's kind of compartmentalized and it's kind of a rhythm and it's kind of a routine, but something's missing. God, thank you that even when we wander, you don't leave us and thank you for these simple instructions. Remember how sweet it is when we are whole in you, when you are our first love. Give us the courage and the humility to repent, the strength to lay down these things that grab hold of our flesh, to lay them down and to return to you, to be so full in our relationship with you. And Lord, I want to say one word for all those married couples that felt like I was reading their mail today, which is so many of us. Lord, the ultimate relationship, the ultimate picture of marriage is you and your bride. You are our bridegroom, and we want to love you the way you first loved us. And God, we want our marriages to demonstrate that love. We want them to display that love to a lost world. And God, I bet you all of us need to remember the gift of the intimacy you gave us with a spouse. Let us repent of those things that steal that intimacy away, that we might return to one another, that you may heal what is broken that our marriages are restored and display the ultimate redemptive story of a love that never grows cold, the love of a Savior. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to have a time of communion. The crackers represent the body of Christ. The juice represents the blood of Christ. Communion is meant to be celebratory we give thanks that he paid the ultimate price in our place and for our sin but I'll say this when you're stuck in your sin when you feel really distant and maybe it's not the overt like I you know there's clearly I'm doing this thing that's overtly wrong maybe it's the subtle drift I just kind of I don't know but something is clearly taken over my heart because my heart is not his then maybe maybe repentance begins now for you just even in your seat just a God cleanse me like like show me even how to come back to love you wholeheartedly. And then it becomes celebratory because you don't have to wait. God doesn't say, okay, well, let me see if you can pull a few things together. Let me see how serious. He already knows where you are. You come back, he runs to meet you. He cleanses, he washes. He puts those arms around you and says, yes, return to me.
So even now, you can lay down the sin that so easily entangles in everything that distracts and destroys, and you can come to the table and celebrate the abundant measure of the grace of God. If you need somebody to talk with you, to pray with you, I'll be right over here. We'll have elders and lay leaders spread out in the gaps and in the lobby. We'd love to pray with you this morning. So the tables are open. Thank you for listening to the audio from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Feel free to make copies and distribute this content, but please do not charge for those copies.